Hi everyone, this is Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I identify as a cis, white, gay man. I'm a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Thanks for coming and talking with me today. Would you mind uh, introducing uh, yourself and uh, what you do here at Howard Brown and um, a little bit about your family, I guess? Hi, yes, I'm Katie Mitos. I'm the Director of Development at Howard Brown, and I use they and she pronouns. So I am a cis white woman married to a trans white person uh, named Steph, who I have been with for over a decade. Um, We met when I was in college, and I thought they were the most beautiful person in the room. And I manifested our relationship over the next two years. Um, We've been together 10 years now, and we have two children, a five-year-old named Levi and a two-year-old named Tatum. I love that. Beautiful family. I love the manifesting uh, your relationship. You and Danielle both have very cute um, stories about your steps because uh, you both have steps. And I they're both masculine of center steps too. So. I love them. I love that. Um, so what was the process like and, and how long into the relationship uh, was it that um, you and Steph decided to have children? So I always wanted children. I believed I would be a good present, thoughtful parent. And I wanted to have children to, you know, shape and shift and love and learn from. And, um, Steph and I, uh, had the conversation pretty early on in our relationship about six months in when, um, I said to them, I'm, I have a timeline. This is something that's a deal breaker for me. You're either in or you're out. Steph is a processor and so was like, I need to think about this. And I was like, think about it. But if your answer is not yes, then I'm a no and I need to know that. And so Steph took a few weeks to think and consider. We were, of course, still dating during that time and uh, came back to me and was like, yeah, I do think I could I could see myself having a family. And I particularly think I could see myself having a family with you. And so we... Um, about four years later, we had Levi. We started the process of having Levi. We used a known donor to have him, who's a friend of ours. And we tried to be really intentional. We weighed every option of how we could potentially raise a child or have a child before we went through um, the process of IVF. Uh, I was the gestational surrogate, so I carried my children, but I have no biological connection to my children. They're Steph's and then our known donors um, biologically. And um, when they were born, they were beautiful, perfect little troll-like lights. They were <laughs> wonderful. So, um, and now we've spent the last five years, you know, one of the things that we do differently as a family than other families we know, uh, one is that we chose a known donor. Um, when we were going through the process of solidifying our relationship with the known donor in this capacity, we, it was very, very, very important to him that we were open with our children about how they came to be. And it was very, very, very important to me that we were open with our children about how, how they came to be. And so the, our, our biological father and I had to 
speak with staff about the idea of what it means to have somebody who you know and love also have a biological connection to your children and to have their families also love your children, uh, even if they're not necessarily their grandparents or their, you know, uncles or aunts, whatever. And um, we made the decision ultimately to move forward. And it's been, honestly, I, I can't imagine having a family any other way. I really can't. I think we are able to create our own possibility. And I love that. I love that sentiment of being able to create your own possibility. And family is truly what you make it. Um, There's no right way or wrong way. There's a lot of, and I'm sure you you feel a lot of questions about how having a known donor works. Um, I mean, I, speaking from personal experience, and it's not the same at all, uh, but it is a non-traditional family, quote unquote, I, I put air quotes around non-traditional, yeah, no, 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 you can't see that. But um, my sister, so before I moved to Chicago a year ago for six years before that, I was living with my parents and my sister, who is a single mom and my niece. So there was no, fa- I mean, my niece has a biological father, but we he's more of a sperm donor at, at this point because he's never met her. Um, and so I know the weird stares of like going into parent teacher conferences with me and my sister and my mom and dad. And because we all picked my niece up from school, we all did homework with her. We all, you know, had a hand in raising her. Um, and so I, I know at least in small part, uh, what it's like to like, how does your family work? Like what is, you know, etc. Um, especially with the, the, the known donor capacity, um, do your children, how do they refer to him um, or do they? They just refer to him by his name. Okay. And he's just a part of the family. Yeah. His parents are uh, wonderful, awesome, amazing people. And my partner and I are like so lucky that they live in the city of Chicago because they've supported in taking care of our kids and watching them and stepping up when our, our biological families, our own biological families couldn't. And so I think like we've been able to make something really special and beautiful for our children that, you know, it, it really makes it, I don't, we're trying to keep it as accessible as possible for our kids so that if they have a question, they never have to feel embarrassed about bringing it to us. We'll just answer it to the best of our ability. A friend of ours got us a book when we were pregnant with Levi called What Makes a Baby. And What Makes a Baby takes all of the gender out of making a baby. And it just talks about the sperm, the egg, and the uterus. So some people have sperm, some people don't, some people have, you know, and it talks about how the egg and the sperm come together inside of a uterus and then a baby is born ultimately. And so we've been able to, through resources, because the world we live in today, we've been able to help talk to our kids and inform our kids in a way that's starting the conversation with them before they're going to, you know, before they're even at a place where they can be like, who's my dad? Why don't I have a dad? Because we're not, we're not there yet. But I do want to say to your point about your own family, I, what something that, that being a queer family has shown me is that there are way more types of families than we can ever possibly imagine. And the idea that there's a stereotypical mom, dad, children, pet uh, is I, like, I almost wonder how 
typical that is Mm -hmm. in the comparison of like how many kids are raised by their grandparents or a caregiver or their aunts or their, you know, um, their uncles, you know, it's, there's just, I think there's so much variability in in who family is to people these days. And it's, and it's, and it's flexible. You might be being, you know, physically raised by one person and emotionally raised by another. There's people play different roles just, and it's not dependent on their, their title. This is off the record and kind of a tangent. I'm probably going to, I'll cut this part out. But um, when I came out, I, you, cause you brought up the point about like allowing your child to ask questions and giving them the language to articulate it before, you know, they arrive at those questions that might be harder. Uh, And I don't even know, my niece is nine and my sister for the longest time did not want to explain to my niece that I was gay because she thought that it would make my niece ask questions about where her dad was because my sister still had not said like, you have a daddy just doesn't want you uh, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just think it's really interesting that like, you know, kids are so accepting of what we're accepting of. And so it would be very easy for her to just be like, you know, we have a non-traditional family. Uncle might have a non-traditional family someday too, if he wants it. We're able to love who we want to love, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and she's married now, uh, so they have their own family and they'll probably have kids of their own. Um, but it, I just thought it was interesting that like, you know, you get where I'm going with that, but I just wanted to embark on that tangent for a second. Um Matt, there's a, I had a question the other day from a donor. We were doing a presentation at a uh, corporate partner mm-hmm. in Chicago. And I had a question from someone who was like, what do I do with my child when they see a non-binary person and they misgender them? Or they ask them, what are you? Yeah. And we get that a lot. My partner looks very much in between. And um, it, what we found and what Steph has done beautifully in those situations, particularly around like questions around who are you what's your identity you know um is to make it like to lean into the curiosity like Mm -hmm. kids aren't asking from a place of hate they're not asking from a place of disgust they're truly curious what are you yeah like you do not i don't understand you in the concept of the world that i that's been created for me yeah and so what that means is that when we get to be when we get to be our whole selves in front of children and talk about how beautiful and amazing we are. And so that's that's part of how Steph responds when kids ask. It's like, I'm both. Isn't that amazing? I and the kids are that. like, what? It is amazing. Yeah. But like, we don't have to apologize for who we are. We can celebrate who we are at our most base interactions. And I think kids are the perfect place to do this because they literally are just curious and excited. Yeah, and and they don't, Kids are dumb in in a lot of ways. That's a bad way of phrasing <laughs> no, it. No, I used to say kids are uh, they're kids smart, people dumb. Yeah, yeah, because they're not gonna. Well, is that really the case when you give them an answer to something about somebody's identity? Like they'll believe you, and they're not. You know, it's not like convincing an adult that you know gender is a spectrum, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're they'll just be like, oh, cool. And move on. So I never really got the argument that like we have to like shield our children from quote unquote hard conversations or things that might quote unquote confuse them. Uh, we talked about it. I just recorded an episode with Chloe Kule about drag and having drag be family friendly and how, you know, that might just confuse kids. And it's like, 
No. Like, they get the concept of dress-up, which drag is not dress-up. That's kind of a really big simplification. But it's not, you know, th these these types of topics are not something that you have to dumb down for any reason. Um, you so, can just be honest. You right. Just be honest. You can just say what it is. Um in terms of the legality and the the paperwork and everything that goes into that, my sister faced a lot when she had my niece because she did not want the father on the birth certificate. He's still not on it. It's not a thing. Uh, and she got a lot of pushback from nurses in the hospital. Um, and then after she gave birth, she went on to become a labor and delivery nurse um, to kind of try to correct those uh, those things and, and be that voice for moms who might be in a similar, or let me, I'm going to catch myself on that. Um, parents who might be in a similar situation. Um, what kind of uh, experiences did you have uh, in the process of having your children as far as, uh, I know hospital systems are really set up towards the binary and the quote unquote traditional family and, you know, visitation rights and just, it, it's a headache all around. Did you encounter any of that in the process? Um, what was that like? Oh, yeah. Um, so we worked with, for Levi, we worked with Fertility Centers of Illinois, worked with Dr. Angeline Beltzos, and then Dr. Beltzos moved to Vios, and so we worked with Vios for Tatum, to have Tatum. Um, again, Steph is the biological parent, I'm the gestational surrogate, and then our known donor is who he is. Uh, but to have a baby with a known donor, you need to have genetic testing to show that you do not have any of the same potential chromosome chromosomal mm. abnormalities, which they do not do for married individuals. Um, so if you're mm. a heterosexual cis man and cis woman, you do not have to undergo genetic testing in the same way. Additionally, at that time, additionally, you... Um, um, it, it, and it's kind of eugenics-y, honestly, because if you have the same chromosomal abnormalities, you cannot mix your sperm and egg. Um, and so that was fascinating mm -hmm. to us as we went through the process. We also needed to go through a psychiatric consultation to say we are sane and so is our known donor. And he's also aware that he's doing this for us, um, which was a very simple process for us facilitated by the centers. Um, but was interesting was the psychiatrist, because we asked, we were like, is this really necessary? And she said, it's actually not for queer parents. Like we have to by rule, but the queer parents who I work with typically are more thoughtful and intentional about the ways in which they are planning their families than folks who are using known donors who may not have those same identities. Uh, but we have to go through, you know, paperwork. We had to have lawyers. We had to have uh, our wills drawn up so that saying that um, if something happened to Levi and Tatum, they wouldn't go to the biological father. Uh, he had to sign documents saying that he wouldn't try to refuse be, rights. Yeah. yeah, he had to refuse rights to paternity. And so we had a lot of that. People asked us at the hospital if Steph could be on the birth certificate, which again was funny because I'm not the biological parent of my children. Yeah. So they've had a lot of difficulty on the hospital paperwork around who I am versus who Steph is. Because in some places I'm listed as mother, in other places Steph is listed as mother, in other places I'm listed as other, Steph is listed as father. So we are literally listed as everything on our yeah. medical records for our kids. And when I was going into the 
the hospital to have my, um, to, to, you know, be checked out throughout my pregnancy. And I used the University of Chicago midwives who were delightful. Um, but the paperwork is not. And so the first thing you encounter, especially as a gestational surrogate, is a bunch of questions asking you about how old you are. Well, my, the egg was older, it was a, was a, a um, geriatric pregnancy. The egg was 35. I'm not, I wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that impact, how does that impact? Because yeah. that changes the way they offer care. How does the, you know, the way that they talk to me about my body change when they find out I'm not the biological parent? It's like, you are the most critical person. You are hold every, everything relies on you as the gestational person until that baby is born. And then you are literally nothing in the medical record. You become nothing. There's, and that's just not possible. Yeah. But you know, they don't do research on women and pregnant people. So of course there's no information about how the impact of gestational surrogates on the longevity of children and particularly around like the way that gestational surrogates are treated during the process is it's, it's like a big question mark for people, but I'll tell you what Matt too, after we had our children on the third day of, of Levi's life. So we're brand new parents. We're like scared out of our minds. We've got a little like funny looking thing that's like very cute, but cries a lot and has jaundice. And we were trying to figure out what we were doing. And I had a terribly traumatic pregnancy. Like I had a long, horrible pregnancy and a really hard birth with Levi. And when um, he finally came to be, we went into one of our first doctor's appointments and the physician said to us, now, exactly who are you? Like, with that tone. And I mean, who else would we have been? Wow. And that was like our first experience of medical care with our children. And from that point forward, we have a wonderful doctor within that practice now um, because there are not many pediatric practices on the South Side as well, uh, the South Side of Chicago, where we live. Um, we have a wonderful provider now, but who's been actively trying to transform the systems. Because the systems all say mother, father, other, mother. So um, if it wasn't for our provider now, but that was, you know, that was our first experience. In terms of second parent adoption, we did that very recently. We did that about a year ago, about a year after Tatum was born. Okay. We'll dive into second parent adoption in a moment, but you said a lot. I want to touch on a few points. Um, That's something that Danielle echoed as far as the mental assessment and like the levels of intentionality you have to exhibit before going into this. Um, And I did ask the question like, is it ever frustrating to interact with people who, straight couples who could, you know, oops, you know, I had one too many margaritas and now we have three kids instead of two. I mean, obviously they still love them, but like it was an oops. And you're like, well, I had to save hundreds of thousands of dollars and had to take a mental health assessment and prove who I am under... Apologies for the siren. This is now the third one in this episode. So coming to you from Chicago, true to form. Um, That was weird. I've never heard them do that before. Um, Is it ever hard to uh, hear people speak like that as a queer parent? I don't know if it's hard. Sometimes I'm jealous. Like that, it would be, it would be a lie of me not to say that sometimes I'm jealous. Um, I'm jealous of the ease at which people are able to get pregnant, but I don't think that's unique to queer people. I think that Mm. for folks across the 
spectrum who aim to be birthing parents, the challenges of pregnancy, of believing that you can't have a child or that your family trauma impacts your ability to have a child, your own, like your infertility challenges, uh, miscarriage and loss. I think that so many people have experienced the difficulty of pregnancy that while I'm jealous of people who can have pregnancies easily enough, I also am hopeful that those people love and care for their children. Yeah. Like I do for mine. Excellently put. I was um, giving you snaps as you were talking because that is uh, an excellent point that you, you don't have to be queer to be jealous of people that can conceive quickly and easily. Um, That's uh, something that everyone is able to feel. Um, The other question I had that you brought up was how well suited the medical system or how not well suited the medical system is to um, cater towards uh, queer families or, or families that exist beyond the binary mom and dad model. Um, You said that you were listed under, you know, probably every title, how many, I don't know what a birth certificate looks like. Well, I guess I do because I have one. I don't know, but I I haven't looked at it in a while. Are there like multiple categories? Like what is the language used in a lot of these forms? And are there any forms currently that allow for something other than a binary mom and dad or, you know, parent A, parent B? Like does, does that exist? Are we moving that way? I don't. I don't know that I know the answer to that, but the birth certificate form that we filled out at the hospital for both of our children, it said parent one, parent two. Okay. So the birth certificate was actually, we were like, look at us putting our names on the birth certificate. Like we felt very like, we're in this now. Yeah. Um, Which when Levi was first born, they put him on the thing and he, you know, they do their first poop, babies do their first poop. Yeah. And Steph and I were like, well, I guess we call the nurse. The nurse was like, it's your baby. Change the diaper. But we had no idea. You know, yeah. we were so new. And I think like that's such a, you know, that is that is the life. Um, <laughs> to truly emphasize our role as parents is that story. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the medical records, the electronic medical records. It's the patient registration forms. It's the stuff where, I, you know, it's... It's frustrating. I don't even know. They don't even have neutral language on the medical record that we are for our our children. So you can either, you can be mother or father or your option is other. So Mm. really, Steph and I are both others, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Like even caregiver, you know, it would all work. Right, other is like the least humanizing thing. It, it, It is, in fact, dehumanizing. Like you are other. You're not, there's no, you know, that's like the least warm title. I, I don't I don't think of like parental love when I think of this is my other. Like, Could you imagine? <laughs> uh, no, that's not. Yeah, that. Have you. I'm I always when I approach these podcasts, whatever the topic is, I always think back to my hometown, which is Southwest Michigan. Very small, very religious, usually well intentioned, but just don't have a lot of exposure to anything. So whether it's, you know queerness of any kind or you know social issues that they don't encounter they just don't have framework or an idea of how to approach it so uh over the course of parenting what are some of the best um or i guess worst uh 
corrections people have made or ways that people have changed their language to suit you and your family? Or how would you encourage people to go about that? Because I find that language is the easiest first step for people to take. I've kind of explained it to my mom with pronouns of like, you know, little ways to ease into stuff of like not assuming people's pronouns and how if you're corrected on them, you don't have to like freak out about it. Like if you'll say bless you to somebody when they sneeze or like excuse me, if you bump into somebody, you can correct your pronoun usage too. It's very small. So with that in mind, how, what would you get, uh, what would you say to somebody to encourage them to kind of, if, this is long-winded, even if they're in the medical field as a nurse and they don't encounter this, uh, or if they're just another parent or a person, how would, how would you encourage them in that way? So Steph and I spent a year trying to figure out what Steph would be called as a parent. They did not want to be mom. And I didn't really care what I was called either, but it was assumed I would be mom, which was fine with me. Um, so after a year, we came up with the term, the term Maza, which is what Steph uses, M-A-Z-A. It is made up. We made it up. Uh, and we did it because Steph and I had an inside joke where we would just add a Z in front of things so mm. that we live in a two flat and uh, the other family that lived above us at the time, we called Steph the Zatriarch because they were the oldest person in the house. And so we were like, oh, you know what? Let's just add a Z. Why are we trying to, yeah. you know, look into other cultures for their terms? when we can just have something that's culturally relevant to us, to, to us and our family, which is really what this is about. So Steph uses Maza. Um, and the family, it was funny because my partner's uh, in-laws called Steph Mazda for a while like the car. Um, but everybody really has come to be very supportive of uh, our term for Steph. And I think that this is particularly well illustrated through our children's daycare. So our children go to a daycare on the south side of Chicago. And when we first went into the school to see if they would watch our children, if they, if we, you know, if we would choose them to watch our children, mm -hmm. um, we were like, Steph was like, I'm non-binary. And they were like, what is that? And we were like, how do you teach children about families in yeah. the school? And they were like, well, a lot of our kids have a lot of different types of families. So like, we are pretty open about it. Like, and we were perfect. like, well, that's exactly what we were looking for. Okay, great. How do you teach your kids? Like if you have a little boy who's playing in the kitchen, what do you do? And they were like, what do you mean? And so we were like, great, great. That's the answer we were looking for there too. Uh, and so we went with this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful provider on the South side. And um, we've been with them for over three years now. And I, of the, all the things in my life that I am grateful for, I am, they're probably on the top five of my list. I'm extraordinarily grateful for the ways that they've shaped my child and both of my children and made them smart and capable and funny and brilliant and interesting because of what they bring to him every day and the ways in which they keep him safe. But more so than that, my five-year-old recently graduated pre-K and they mm -hmm. had a pre-K graduation. And during the graduation, they actively used Steph's pronouns when we were talking about our family, which was like a very emotional moment for both my partner and I. Um, but Father's Day was the week before. Mm. And I am clearly the person who celebrated on Mother's Day. But this year on Father's Day, they sent home two flyers, one that said Father's Day and you got hot dogs and donuts and one that said Maza's Day, which gave marshmallows and milkshakes. And like, <laughs> it makes me tear up now. I am too. That they put such thought, like they didn't just 
put Steph in with the fathers. Like they actively made a choice Mm -hmm. to honor our family as who we are in a way that called out Steph as a unique caregiver for our children. (laughs) How could we get a better, like to me, that's such growth and engagement and partnership. And like, that's us growing with them. We're white people in a black community. And this is a family owned woman run black owned daycare. And we've learned during our time there and they have similarly learned from us. And it feels like a really joyful relationship for me. But also at that celebration, My partner texted me in the first like 30 minutes and was like, this is really hard. The kids keep asking me what I am. Hmm. And usually it's one off, but when you're at a daycare, you have 15 kids surrounding you. Who are you? You're not Levi's dad. What are you? You're not Levi's mom. And Hmm. Levi is just saying to them over and over, this is my Maza. They are Hmm. just my Maza. He's correcting people's pronouns of Steph. No, they, they, they. And Steph and I were texting then and I said, remember... They're not going to remember the definition you give them because they're kids and they don't care. What they're going to remember is that Levi's Maza had fun and created a space where they were seen and where they felt joyful. Mm -hmm. And so Steph leaned into that. And the rest of that event, they played with the kids, they ran around with the kids, they, you know, were jumping. And at the end, all the kids wanted to give Steph a hug and were telling Levi that they had this really great Maza. And it's like, these are the moments that change people. These are the yeah. moments that make our family a part of the community and not the queer family that's coming in to tell people, here's what it's like to be a queer family. Right. That's, and that was probably a very formative experience for those kids too, to show them that you know, identities exist beyond what you might have known previously, but that doesn't make, you know, just because this is a a new identity to you, it doesn't make it any harder to understand or to accept into your life or to, you know, to accommodate in any way. So I love, that's such a a beautiful story. And I love that daycare was so accommodating because I know that's not the case in a lot of places. So that's incredible that they're willing to, to go out of their way to to make sure that you and and I'm sure other people feel welcome as well. You know what? It wasn't overnight. It's step by step. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes as queer people, we want to see, I think as anybody who's different, we want to see change immediately mm-hmm. and, and, you know, suddenly. And it took time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great reminder. Diving kind of into more of the political aspect of this, um, we know Roe v. Wade is overturned uh, recently, and the, this is such a huge issue, and I don't want to be, you know, obviously Roe being overturned in and of itself is an immense tragedy and will impact huge swaths of America, um, but there was also troubling language in the dissent that called into question the right to privacy, um, and you know, I think it's possible to grieve for what we lost now and to also be worried for what's coming down the line. So we're not trying to, you know, write off any, you know, certain aspect of this, but I wanted to get your take on how that um, right to privacy or the loss of it might impact your family, because you mentioned second parent adoption. So can you run us through what second parent adoption looks like, what it means legally, and how Roe factors into that for you personally? Yeah. So last year in um, 
uh, no, two years ago, so in, like November 2020, uh, Steph and I decided we needed to move forward with second parent adoption. We'd been talking about it. We'd been putting it off because money. And we were like, we can't put this off any longer. We have to move forward. Our family is at risk. We don't know that we'll always live in Chicago. And we also travel, you know, to nearby states. And my family uh, lives in Missouri. And so something could happen if we went to Missouri. And we wanted to make sure that we were safe and that our children would be safe and that we would both be able to make medical decisions for our children Mm -hmm. in the moment without having to be questioned about our ability to do so. Um, And even if you have a birth certificate with your name on, you could still be questioned and they can still, you know, hold you and make you wait. Um, Additionally, Steph and I are married and happy now. I hope we will be married and happy forever. But if something were to happen, then where one of us dies and our families step in, or if, uh, I don't know, we became very different people and decided to go after each other, second parent adoption assures that the children are ours. Mm-hmm. And that's that. And it it supersedes all state documentation. So we could go to any state in the country and at a federal level, we are recognized as, as the, parents the parents of our children. That's huge. What is, is that, I'd imagine, a lengthy and difficult process to accomplish? It took us about six and a half months um, we are lucky because we had a wonderful judge. Okay. Um, and the judge waived the right, uh, waived our home study. So we didn't have to have a home study proving that we could be parents, uh, which would have been an additional cost to us. Um, and wait, hold on. You talked earlier about needing a mental health certification in order to conceive a child, in order to be listed legally. As their parents, you had normally would have to have a home study where they come into your home and what watch you cook for your kid or they check to make sure your home is safe and that your children are happy and healthy and secure. And um, ours was waived, so we did not have to do that. But depending on the judge you have, depending on how that request is made, it is possible that you would have to to go through that process. And we were a little sick about what that process could look like because there's so much um, variability, I -hmm. think, by people. So what if you got somebody who didn't, who's, didn't like queer people? Who was your home study person? Like, what are they, what are they weighing you on? What do you, so we were very, very fearful. The home study caused a lot of anxiety for us before our, um, our lawyer told us that we had had it waived. Um, And the, the moment we we had been talking with Levi because the lawyer told us your kids are going to have to say that they're happy with you on the, the call. They have to respond to the judge when the judge talks to them. Well, Levi is extremely shy, very, very, very shy. And so we spent a month before the court date practicing with him and telling him that we were going to meet a new friend. The new friend was going to be asking us about our family. We wanted to show that we were a family. And so when asked if we were a family, we needed him to say yes. Um, and like, we were like made it kind of a game, like mm-hmm. who's your mom, you know, yeah. who's your baza? Who's your, you know, we would like tease him and joke with him and try to get him to feel good about saying, yes, you're my family. Um, and when we met with the judge, he asked, you know, he did ask Levi that, but he was, you know, very kind. He was a very kind man. And Levi responded pretty well and was shy and then went back. And afterwards, the judge looked at me and Steph via the computer. This is pandemic and we were in a virtual courtroom. And he looked at us and he said, I'm so sorry that you've had to go through these hoops to affirm who you really are. And Steph and I 
you know, we're not particularly like, Steph's not a crier. And we both like burst into tears because mm-hmm. I think we needed to hear that. You know, you, you do so many hoops, you go through it, you spend so much money, you have to answer so many questions, you have to put together so much that you kind of, you lose the personhood in the details that you're putting together for any kind of legal certification. You, you just do. And when the judge said that, I think it brings back to what you said earlier, we felt very human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine the, I mean, paperwork and legality doesn't define what a family is, but when you're so lost in it, uh, or, you know, you, you consistently have to take steps to revalidate that that is your family. I can imagine how having one person just say, you know, you shouldn't have to do this, especially from a judge how the person who's making the exactly decision. <laughs> how validating that is it's just like you can exhale and like oh like you're right yeah this is frankly bullshit but i you know that's so heartwarming to hear um i hope that's the case for anybody who out there listening pursuing second parent adoption i'm sure the experiences may vary um what uh what advice would you give to somebody who is either about to embark on second marriage adoption or um, is in the midst of it or, you know, somebody who might be in a similar position? How have you kept morale up trying to face wave after wave of legal changes and then Supreme Court changes and, you know, everything that threatens to invalidate the legal standing of your family? I feel relieved that we did it when we did it, given the way of the world right now. I feel so relieved that we don't have to spend money on that specific thing right now when we feel so scared. We do feel so scared about the Roe decision. You know, we're devastated for a lot of reasons. We're also, you know, sickened for reasons, you know, insert uh, adjectives here. Right. Um, But we're also really concerned because this we have four embryos in the bank and what happens to them they are fertilized do if we have an agreement with our donor what will happen a legal agreement with our donor about what will happen if we choose not to use those embryos what happens to them because they're to be unfrozen are they going to have to go to somebody else? Are they, we can't, can we donate them to science? That was our initial donate to science and then, you know, free, unfreeze. Like what, what happens to them? And what is the implication for our family if we can't unfreeze them? And what's the implication for our family if, you know, we, you know, there's something that happens where we'd have to use them. What if, you know, like, what is it? What does it mean? And we received an email from our um, fertility center shortly after we the decision came out, and it was like, we're doing everything we can to stay on top of this. We'll keep you updated, uh, which we appreciated hearing. But I think that, like, we're terrified about what Roe v. Wade means for our family. Second parent adoption means that we feel as safe as we can in this situation with our children as we are right now. For anybody who has embryos or is using IVF or, you know, has had to procreate or conceive in a way that's atypical, this is a huge question mark. 
And beyond that, what does it mean for, I, I, I just think the questions for our family are like huge. And then also, if we cross state lines, we are covered. If let's say my children get hurt in Missouri when we're visiting family, we are assured by our second parent adoption paperwork that we will always be the ones to make the medical decisions for our children. We will always be seen as the parents. That's excellent. We appreciate that. That feels good. But like, we can't move to another state. How are we going to move to another state where my partner is going to be attacked for being queer? Like, yeah, it just, it, there's so many things I've, I've, uh, I love Chicago. I don't know that I'm a lifer here. You could judge me if you want. Um, my partner is a lifer and where else can we go? Yeah. Where else are we going to go? Yeah. You know, if it's not, if, if we're not going to go further north, where, how can we, and I think that this, you know, the Roe v. Wade question for me brings up so many additional questions about safety, future, security, family, you know, and I think, I think when I looked at the, the, um, the documents that came out from, from the Supreme Court justices, you know, I just, I kept thinking to myself, like, it's that dehumanization. Mm -hmm. When it's down to a a word on a paper, you yeah. lose the human aspect of I'm a really good parent to my kids. And my partner is a really good parent to our kids. And our kids are growing up in a space where we are giving them the possibility to be whoever they want to be. And they're both um, pretty stereotypical cis little boys right now. Um, but whoever they want to be, they get to be. And I think that the idea that because of who we love or how Steph, Steph's gender appears and is, that we would be worth less is mind-boggling to me. That we wouldn't be able to care for our children with the same amount of like intentionality and love that mm -hmm. other parents is mind-boggling to me. And I think like all of that comes down to our right to make the decision to have our children. We made the decision to have our children when we did in the way in which we did after hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of conversation with the people who helped make it possible between ourselves, with our families and our chosen families. And, and I, I can't imagine someone telling me. Yeah. You, I won't add on too much because you said that so beautifully. Um, and I, I truly don't think there's too much more to say on that front, but I, it truly didn't occur to me that, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, you know, the possible ramifications for, you know, the loss of, of gay marriage, but it also affects, um, queer families in the way of IVF and like you said, embryos and there, there, it, it truly impacts, you know, everybody across the board, not just, uh, when it comes to like the possible dissolution of gay marriage. So <sighs> I had to have a, heave a big sigh on that one because yeah, there's, it's, it is truly mind boggling. And I, like you said, the, the, yeah, the dehumanization I think is the big part because, yeah, I, I'm 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 at a loss of words when I and I'm just stammering at this point. So, and I don't want to keep you too long. So we'll we'll wrap things up. Um, what what advice would you give to to people who either are part of a queer family and are worried uh, about what's to come, or uh, on the other side, people who 
may not be familiar with, you know, queer atypical families and don't understand how to uh, open the door wider or be more accepting. Um, it's kind of a two-pronged question. Uh, what advice, so I'll, I'll rephrase it better. What advice would you give to people who aren't familiar with queer families and want to be more accepting but just don't really know where to begin? And then additionally, what advice would you give to people who are part of a queer family that are worried with the overturning of Roe v. Wade? A lot of my family is conservative and my dad is conservative and my dad is also one of the greatest champions of my partner and I and that I mean he's always I always have known that he's loved me a hundred percent but how do you say to your family you say to people you love who you care for I deserve what you deserve. My life is my own. Time, repeated conversations, grace for each other, allowing for mistakes. My dad was very, very bad with my partner's pronouns. When Steph first came out, he didn't get it. And he was like, you know, like uncomfortable by it. And uh, he's excellent with them now. It took like three years before he started using them. But we gave him time because this is kind of how Steph is as a person. We gave him time to get used to it. And then Mm -hmm. we said, listen, we have a child. You need to use Steph's pronouns because don't misgender my partner in front of my child. And my dad was like, that's a good point. And bang, bang, boom, it was done. Mm -hmm. And I know people don't have that same experience. But I think like I'm not, again, trying to change my dad overnight. I'm not trying to change people who disagree with me in one day. I know that when I make a conscious effort to be a part of someone's life, they make a conscious effort to be a part of mine. And I know from my friends and family that the folks who are deeply embedded into my life change me every day. And so there's no reason why if I trust someone and love them, I can't offer a shift of perspective that they won't listen to if it's done in a way that's framed with love and care. I am 100% confident I have changed tens of people, you know, at least. (laughs) Tens of people's opinion about, about queer people. And I think it's because when you meet people where they are and you see, you know, I don't, I don't think like my dad and his, I don't, you know, he's always believed that like gay people can buy whatever they want because he believes very much in capitalism. But like, um, you know, marriage was like, okay. Uh, And I think, you know, seeing when he saw that me and Steph were deeply committed and devoted to each other, it was a no brainer. And so I, I am definitely, I would consider myself an advocate. I would consider myself an activist in some ways. And I would say like part of the way I do advocacy is saying, you know, if we all deserve to be at the table, then people who think differently than me deserve to be at the table too. So long as they're not causing me active harm Mm -hmm. or the people around me active harm. And if they're willing to engage in a conversation, then what if we leave one step further, we'll be better off. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my like advice to people about, you know, folks being different. And then I think my advice to people who have children or are considering having children or want to protect themselves is do it. You need to, you can't mess around because ain't nobody messing around with us right now. And we just don't know 
we just don't know what will be safe. Yeah. And we cannot risk that. Excellent point. Excellent point. It's 402, so I won't keep you because I know you're busy. But, oh, wow. I, I, yeah, again, I'm just my, I don't, I, I'm one of those people that I'll be in the shower tonight uh, and then be like, oh, that was a great point. I should have brought, should have brought that up. Because I'm, I'm still just processing everything that both you and Daniel have said because, yeah, the, this is such a, a complex issue and there's so much to dive into and I'm sure so many stories on both of your parts about how, you know, society has, you've had to react to society as a queer family and, and yeah, there's, there's just so much. So, um, I just wanted to give a massive thank you for giving me your time and, um, being so open about everything. Um, truly, I think this is one of my favorite episodes just because this, this type of, um, emotional, uh, honesty, I think, is is huge and super important because I think when it's thing black and white things like the Supreme Court and it's very, like we talked about, even with birth certificates, it's a very like legal, like it's very stark, very dehumanized conversation that we have to have these kind of injections of real emotion and personal stories to remind us that at the end of the day, these these policies do impact real people on a real human level and we can't lose sight of that. So I hope that this podcast kind of serves to accomplish that at least a little bit. So um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Matt, for having me. Uh, my name is Danielle Nolan Ragland. I'm the internal communications representative here at Howard Brown. Um, and a little bit about my family. I have um, two big dogs and a cat. And I know you're not wondering at all about that. I was actually going to um, <laughs> add that if you didn't, because I wanted to make sure that that was included. In there, yes. But. Archie and Pike are very important, as well as Donkey Absolutely. the cat. Um, but the I think we're here. Hmm? Donkey? Donkey, yeah. His name is Donkey because he's a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Anyway. Um, yeah. He... Um, but I think we're here specifically to talk more about the human members of my family. Uh, my wife, Steph, and our son, who is four, Campbell. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, I, I brought you in to talk a little bit about um, second parent adoption. I know Roe v. Wade was just overturned. And while that is obviously a huge issue in and of itself, there was other Problematic language included in um, Chief, Jeff, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent um, or a, agreement to dissent. And we're going to unpack that all uh, with a legal expert forthcoming. But um, uh, that kind of um, calls into question the right to privacy, which is a nebulous statement. And I intend to learn more about it. But that also poses a lot of problems um, for people whose families are structured around that right to privacy if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get your take on it because your family is one of those that, uh, depending on how things go, there's going to be a lot of logistical problems uh, or you have had to take a lot of logistical steps in order to ensure that your family is not affected. So I guess maybe the best way of approaching this would be going back to the beginning of deciding to add Campbell into your family, what the process of that was like or even um how you and stuff got married 
because I mean the the legality of, of gay marriage hasn't even always been the case. So uh, I guess let's go back to the beginning if that would be helpful or yeah. easy. It's one of my favorite stories. I love awesome. it. Um so Steph and I um have been together since 2012. We consider ourselves a couple on June 28th, 2012, Pride Sunday. How gay is that? I love that. Um, Happy anniversary belated. Right, thanks. Um, It gets better. The the year from then, June 28th, 2013, a couple of days before that, um, the Illinois legalized civil unions. We had planned to get civil unioned on our date anyway. So that worked out really well. That was Mm -hmm. really lovely. And then we planned to get married two years later and have like a big wedding on June 28th again. And that Friday right before in 2015 is when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage nationwide. Uh, So it was quite a party. It was really, really lovely. Um, So we've, I think, we talk about microgenerations of queerness and how even just a couple of years can really shift somebody in their understanding of queerness and identity and all of that. Um, I think where we landed really shaped ours. We came into it with, um, I think, a lot of hope, obviously understanding that, you know, things are hard and things have been hard for a long time. Um, but we came, we started our family with a lot of hope, thinking of, you know, okay, so the country is moving in the right direction. You know, we can finally get married. Um, You know, my wife is a firefighter, so nobody asks if she's gay when she runs in to save your life or save your house. So I don't know why it's fair that she, you know, couldn't, and her position was, I don't know why it's fair that I can't get married and have the same rights as the people who are, whose homes and property I'm saving. Um, so then we decided we wanted to have Campbell and wanted to have a Campbell, I should say. Right. And um, we decided to go with a with an anonymous donor. We went through a sperm bank. Um, but the facility that we went through um, was lovely and our doctor was lovely and very welcoming and all of that. But um, there were so many hoops we had to jump through. Like we had to meet with their... Um, office psychologist or psychiatrist, I'm not sure, um, just essentially to get her to sign off on the fact that we could agree to become parents, even though we were paying for it, we'd paid for everything, everything was covered. Um, So that was, I feel like we started to realize that there were going to be hoops and hurdles and, but we jumped through all of them and Mm then we had Campbell and he's lovely. He's amazing. He's just, he's so smart and so sweet and silly. And I love him. Um, but one of the best parts about us being married is um, after he was born, we were at Prentice at Northwestern. They were very accommodating, very um, chill about uh, the two of us and very welcoming. Um, and then the social security administration person comes in to have us sign the birth certificate. And it was a really beautiful moment because for all of the time I could remember, I've heard that, you know, it would be a thing to have Steph's name on the birth certificate. And now being in the state of Illinois and being in this country, um, my wife is my wife legally on our marriage certificate. So she's the presumed parent of Campbell, which allowed 
her name to go right on his birth certificate mm-hmm. um, then in the hospital. So that was really, really lovely. Right. So it's, I mean, it's good to hear you didn't face any um, issues with that. I know um, my, for my own experience, my sister uh, was a single mom. Uh, and um, when, when she gave birth, she did not want, we don't even like to use the word father cause he's more, more of a sperm donor, but we didn't, uh, um, didn't want his name on the birth certificate. And she even from that got a lot of like issues and, and side glances and like back kind of backlash from nurses and people in the hospital. Like, but you have to have somebody. No, you don't like you can, you can do whatever way is most, you know, is is best for you. Um, And, and then she became a labor and delivery nurse. And a lot of uh, the way hospitals are set up uh, and just baby delivery in general, it's always geared towards heteronormativity uh, and the quote unquote traditional family. Um, So it's, it's good and refreshing to hear that you didn't really face any of that um, in uh, the process of having Campbell in at the hospital and everything. Um, afterwards, have you ha- run into any issues when it comes to like, um, you know, parent or designated guardian or, or, you know, anything as Campbell enters school where there's been issues as far as that's concerned? Yeah. I mean, we, I guess simply by virtue of being a queer woman of color, I tend to look at things with a little bit of a longer view lens and kind of get a I don't want to say a better big picture, but, you know, if you're part of any historically underrepresented, underrepresented community or minority, um, you're used to looking for the nuance of things and you're used to looking at the nuance of a situation and the layers and levels um, exemplified in a given situation. So I think we're always looking for ways to be as inclusive as we can and we always encourage his school to. Um, they've done some great activities and they're very, you know, um, happy to celebrate pride. They did have a dad activity, um, which we had to discuss with them that, you know, clearly no man has ever even come to pick Campbell up. He has literally only been picked up or dropped off at school um, by women, by myself or my wife or our mothers. Um, so I don't know where you thought the dad card was going to go, but I would love to talk about you know, what kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion training you're providing for your, you know, instructors, because there are ways around excluding parts of your classroom and parts of those children, because Montessori is really all about the whole child, then let's honor the whole child. But really, we've mostly just had those small things where we're talking to friends and ask, hey, can we say, you know, the grown-ups of these kids versus moms and dads, because not everyone has a mom and a dad, not everyone has a mom and a dad in the picture. Um, little stuff like that. Um, we're always looking for better ways to to encapsulate I, what I think is a really beautiful bit of humanity, because the world wasn't made for us. The world was actually made for families that don't look anything like ours, so the fact that, you know, we we could look at us having to get married twice as like, oh, we had to get married twice. But like, I look at it as we got to do this twice. Right, like, I love you so twice. much. We got to do this two times and the system wasn't made for us. So we made a system and, you know, no, we weren't supposed to have a family, but we have one and we have this kid. So I'm absolutely going to do everything I can to make sure he feels supported and safe and 
if anything, it makes it even more precious that he knows that he has two moms and that his two moms love him and that we would go to the ends of the earth to make sure he is comfortable, you know, supported and all of that. Yeah. Um, do you think it's, um, the, the adversity or the barriers to, you know, that queer people encounter in, in having a family or having a child makes those, um, relationships that much more I mean obviously it's it's a child so it's going to be you know you're everything regardless but do you think it makes you look at parenting or your family differently knowing what you've gone through to get there absolutely without I I don't even hesitate to say yes um I think any any child is is a blessing or should be viewed as a blessing and you know I don't mean that to sound the way that I think it sounds, but I think <laughs> I know what, what you saying, mean. Right. You know what I mean? I know what right? I mean. But I know that we, there was no, there was no accident. There was no mistake. There was no, well, what if we just, like right. he was so planned. This child was so wanted and so planned. Um, and the fact that we continue to, have to articulate to folks okay no he doesn't have a dad he has a sperm donor he has a donor we don't celebrate father's day we have like grandpa's day and we have other mother's day because there is no dad in our house there yeah. is no father here um little stuff like that i think we're expanding not only our understanding of our community but also our friends and family they're getting a better understanding of what a family could look like. A family doesn't just look like these two people, a man and a woman, and their 2.5 children and a right. picket fence. But you can have two women, a four-year-old, two big brown dogs, a crazy cat, and you know, and and that's that's your family. And that and also the aunts and uncles that he has who love him like their own. Yeah. You know, and they're our friends. They're our chosen family. Neither Steph nor I have siblings. So we really, mm. we do rely on our our friend family to make up the social network for us too. Yeah. It's such an interesting dynamic because my niece was an oops baby. Uh, and for the large part of her life, she's nine now and up until last year. Um, and when, before I moved here, I moved here a year ago. Um, I was living with my parents and my sister and my niece. So it was sometimes me who picked her up from school or did her homework with her for parent-teacher conferences once we, my my dad and my mom, so my niece's grandpa and grandma, uh, me, her uncle, and my sister all showed up to parent-teacher conferences because we were like, we all help her with school, so this is what our family looks like. And I was proud to hear her say, like, on the playground, somebody was like, why don't you have a dad? And she's like, well, I don't have a dad, but I have a papa and a grandma and an uncle, so whatever. Uh, so I love, I love the, that, you know, every type of family is, um, at least we're making progress towards every type of family feeling accepted and not having to like reissue those statements constantly. Um, so, I mean, it it seems like, you know, obviously you've, you've had obstacles and, and leaps and things, but it seems like for the most part, aside from people's own, you know, personal ignorance and things institutionally, there hasn't been, a ton um, troubling you up until now, recently in the current political climate. So, what what runs through your mind when you hear about the Supreme Court kind of doing away with precedent and uh, 
what, yeah, what comes to your mind or, or what uh, steps do you think that you might have to take? Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say what comes to my mind is I see myself standing at like an intersection, but one of those um, six corner intersections mm. where there's one offshoot that's me as a black person. There's one offshoot that's me as a woman. There's one offshoot that's me as a queer person. And I'm, and I'm at the center of all of those things. And then off to the other side, there's me as a mother, there's me as a wife, and there's me as like just a human being. And what I imagine or what comes to my mind is me trying to go in all six directions at once without having like the cartoon split mm-hmm. in between. Cause that's really, it's really what it, it's what it feels like. And it's interesting because my wife is not um, a woman of color. She's white woman. And she, even she understands that there's some nuance here that I'm feeling. And there's a lot of, there's a layer to it that she just isn't quite going to um, internalize the same way. Um, so there's that. And yeah. I think as far as the next steps, number one, um, it's articulating the feeling and being okay with like, with the idea that, <clears throat> you know, number one, yes, this is the making abortion illegal nationwide or, you know, changing that legality will is is terrible on its own in my personal opinion um but the way that justice thomas speaks about the right to privacy and the way some i forgive me i don't remember uh the congressperson's name but it was a congressman i believe from one of the southern states maybe one of the republican ones out west who was saying that um we need to look at Brown versus Board of Education and Plessy versus Ferguson. Oh, yeah. You know, if we're really, like, it feels like everyone that was very upset in 2016 should get a told you so dance, but, like, nobody wants to dance about this because we said that the slope was slippery and now we're all just sliding downhill and the bottom doesn't look great. And... You know, I don't know how many of us brought snowshoes and ice picks. You know what I mean? I I just, I don't know. Um, so my ice pick is a lawyer and my snowshoe is the money to pay that lawyer, you know, and that also is exemplary of privilege. We had to pay a lot to have Campbell. We didn't get to just make him on our own. We had to pay for the doctors. We had to pay for the, all of that. Um, we had to pay for the donation that made him. So the idea that we are now going to spend more money to make sure that we can keep him no matter what, and that no one could ever tell us that we are not his parents, when I know that he's ours because I carried him myself and my wife was there when he was cut out of my body, I, I, it's, it's maddening and it's, it's offensive and it feels like a direct disrespect to the last four years and some change, five years now, because I was pregnant in 2017, um, of working so hard and having such faith in my family that, you know, without the ability to pay for an attorney to give us the legal rights, because 
A birth certificate is an administrative order. It's not a legal, it's administrative paperwork. It's not a legal order. So if something happens to me and I was the carrying parent, my wife's rights to him could be challenged. You know, we have family that live in other states. And if we go to another state and God forbid something happens, sorry, I knocked on wood there. Um, you know, and I'm no longer able to effectively speak for him or advocate for him, they might not give her the same ability to do so without the right paperwork in hand. So not only do we travel with birth certificate, and not only do we travel with passports that have all three of our names on it, and not only we are now also going to travel with paperwork that says no matter what, this is his mom and I am his mom and period, that's it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's that's the next steps. And yeah, it feels very, it, it I'm grateful that we can do it, but I'm very concerned that we have to and that we're getting, it will become a thing that we need to have done. Yeah. Where now it feels like we're planning ahead, but it just, it doesn't feel like a plan for a what if thing. It feels like this is going to happen inevitably and we yeah. just have to be able to still be the three of us at the end of it. Hmm. You said a lot and I'm trying to... <laughs> wrap my brain around all the different points I wanted to to touch on or to echo. First, I wanted to say thank you for being um, so forthcoming about uh, the emotions that are tied into all this, because that's, like I said before we started recording, uh, this podcast has a lot of, um, you know, facts and big issues and things, but we haven't up until for uh, I mean for most of it we haven't really dived into how these big issues affect people personally so I'm really grateful that you shared that um the I love the the metaphor of intersectionality um because that's a concept and a word that gets thrown around a lot and unless you do have an intersectional identity it's really hard to grasp what it means uh, and I think that really puts it perfectly of like, you have all these roads converging and you're at the intersection of all of them and each road, you have to do different things to, you know, to, to be true to yourself on like you as, you know, uh, a wife and a mother and, uh, you know, uh, a black woman and a queer woman and like all of those things, you can't isolate each of them because they all play into one of the, you know, and, and so, yeah, I just think that was beautifully put, and I love um, that imagery. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting is that we, the concept of like, and, and I'm going to have to like edit this out as I like talk my way through this and understand it, but <laughs> um, it's so easy for straight families, right? Uh, and it seems a little like, like bring it up that way, but have you felt that, that like you can mess around one night and all of a sudden you have a family in the States willing to bend over backwards to give you what you need to have that child, uh, to have that child provided for. And you and your wife have, you know, you know, or queer families in general can long for a child and not have the money. And, you know, it's, it's just sometimes you're up a Creek and the States like, well, come to us when you have more money and things are changing slowly uh, depending what state and organizations are willing to kind of help get those resources in place for people who want children. But ha is it ever difficult for you to, because 
I find and have found, apologies for the siren, I always say it's the true indicator that we're coming to you from Chicago because they're <laughs> uh, always right outside the window. But um, I have found in um, talking, because I like pseudo considered myself a parent when I was like raising my niece, that like parents talk to other parents about their kids and raising children. That's like the most common denominator. When you enter those spaces with other parents or other straight parents, is it ever hard to like find common ground or to to listen to a, you know a straight parent talk about how hard it is or it was to do xyz and you're like well i wish i could relate but nope I, I had it different i had it hard in a whole different way that you will never imagine what what are those situations like um yes and yes absolutely um you know we we love Campbell and we both agree that we couldn't actually imagine our lives now without him. And like, what were we so busy doing before? Um, but ideally we would like to have a couple of children. We wanted to have three. Um, the pandemic made it really clear that our societal infrastructure is not solid built on sand and you know by the grace of you know the powers that be and a lot of hard work and you know our ability to withstand our you know our very careers we we're still here um there are a lot of people who are this close to not making it and um you know the perfect example of this is friends who have had pandemic babies. And we're like, well, what else was I supposed to do but have a kid? And it's like... A lot. Right. There are a lot of things. You could have done a lot of things because there are a lot of people who couldn't um, and who don't understand the level of fourth, like ahead of time thinking you have to you have to put in until they're in this situation. So until I have a friend who is going through IVF and understands the doctor's appointments at 6 a.m., you know, on the days when you're ovulating so they can check your blood levels so that then you can come back and maybe try and then maybe that time it doesn't work. So then you have to do it all over again. Um, until one of them goes through that experience, I do find that I have to kind of not, there is a level, I don't want to say dissociate, but I have to kind of remove myself emotionally from some conversations because no, I don't, I don't identify with like going to the bar and getting a little too tipsy with my spouse. And then whoops, we now have three kids instead of two, but like, it's okay. Cause we just love them so much. It's like, no, Steph and I went to our local bar and went to the basement and I took out my laptop and we went through sperm donor, you know, right. profiles and we picked a sperm donor sitting there and sure we cheersed about it, but like it wasn't an accident and it wasn't anything yeah. that we could have not planned. So I think, again, like the way we talk about life and children and marriage and humanity is so informed by heteronormativity that more often than not i i have to just remember that nobody else 
nobody else in this room is thinking about it the same way as me and actively then is it worth me having a conversation about this or am I do I just let this go? Yeah. If it's a friend who's going to continue to say moms and dads and they're going to say it around Campbell or they're going to continue to say it around Steph, okay, we can talk about that. If it's somebody I don't know who I likely will never interact with again or certainly not on a really warm personal basis, they can say what they want. Um, but people in our sphere have to use language that makes us feel as supported and included as we expect to be because you know say what you want about me you could even say what you want about Steph but we'll both hulk out over <laughs> Campbell and making sure that he feels as included and welcomed as anybody any other little child in the situation so I love that and I yeah. identify with the kind of picking and choosing your battles over what to explain into who uh, when my, just my sister and my niece and I would go out and I'd like carry her baby carries moving or like we early on, we went to Disney a couple times and they're like, does mom and dad want to get in the photo? And it's like, I would always take steps to like preemptively be like, uncle wants a photo on his own. Like referring to myself, like I very clearly am the uncle. Uh, but like other times it's just like, I don't care if they think that I'm, you know, her dad, whatever. Uh, so there is that element of picking and choosing battles. But when I'm, in these types of interviews, um, doing podcasts, I always think about what people from my hometown would think um, because they are kind of the quintessential, like, small Midwest, uh, very religious, like, well-meaning generally, but just don't have exposure to a lot of people different than them. So it's hard for them to know how to go about uh be, you know, being more accommodating or learning more or, or things like that. And so I, I always put it like with, with pronouns, I had started referring to people whose pronouns I didn't know as like they, them, like if, if pizza is getting delivered, I was like, Oh, I, you know, the pizza delivery driver is here. I hope they brought it, whatever. Uh, and I just kind of explained like, yeah, because I don't know, it's easier to do, do it that way. And then suddenly that made sense to them. So I'm kind of, trying to think of similar approaches to this situation where like what for for people who aren't used to having to modify their language but do want to be more accommodating and do want to make families of all kinds feel welcome what is the first step to kind of thinking about this in a way that allows more people opens the door wider um for all types of families is it Mm -hmm. Is it, is language the easiest and quickest thing? Is it, um, the kinds of things you talk about? Is it, is it all of the above? What are, what are the like steps that people can take if they do yeah. want to show some better allyship? I think the language is a huge first step. Instead of saying, did you ask your mom or dad? Or like, where's your mom? Is your mom coming to pick you up and say, who's your grown up? You know, do you have, who's, Who's your adult that's going to come pick you up? What is their name? Um, you know, do you want to be a firefighter instead of do you want to be a fireman or a policeman? Um, do you want to be a police officer? Do you want to be, you know, because we don't have like a teacher or teacherette. They're all teachers. You know, in yeah. some instances we have, we have other words for these things. So trying to use the most inclusive description of a person Um you know, just the same as like, if you see someone differently abled, you know, Campbell is now at an age where he's going to start asking questions. We say, 
Well, they're in they're in their wheelchair because it looks like they're they may be having some trouble using their legs. Maybe you would want to ask them if they have any other if they want to share anything else with you. You know, empowering children to also like ask questions and say like if you want to know if that's if that's her mom, why don't you ask her if that's if that's her mom or ask her who her adult is, you mm-hmm. know, trying to find ways not only to like for ourselves but for um the kids to start to think about relationships outside of the usual like mom and dad that they see on a commercial or on um on a TV show. And a perfect example of this and how I think it shows it really is nurtured into us is I remember being like six or seven at most. Um, and we were at my grandmother's house and my mom was sitting at the table with me. And I remembered asking my grandma, like, but why do you and my mom get along? She was like, what do you mean? I said, well, because on all the TV shows, like the moms always hate their mother-in-law. Like they never, like they never like her, but like my mom really likes you. Why? And she's like, well, just because the show says it's true doesn't mean that's the way all families work. Sure. Some people don't get along, but we love each other. Mm -hmm. And like, to me that, and I've talked about that recently with friends when like, that's, that tells me that it's not about straight or gay. It's not about queer or not. It's not about, it's whatever you see, you're going to think it's normal. You're going to think that's how it works. So it's about the media that you consume, you know, get books like mommy, mama, and me and read those to your kids, you know, get books that have grandparents as the adults, you know, because not every child has parents. Sometimes there's grandparents that step in and aunts and uncles, brothers, cousins, etc. So all of that, I think any and all of the above is helpful. I kind of feel the way about inclusivity, the way I do about the environment. I think part of why we're so up a creek is because everybody wants to do everything perfectly. And if you can't do everything, then I'm just not going to do it at all. And really it's no, if everybody's just making small choices that are better for all of us, then we're all going to be better, but we're never going to get there if everybody's waiting to be perfect. Um, and much like I've explained to his teachers, um, one was really incredulous at the idea that we are really steadfast about pronouns here and that, just, well, what do you do when someone says she and you don't use she? I say, then I say That's they. Perfect. And she goes, oh, and then it's, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, no, it's not. It's because then the onus is on me to absolve them of feeling bad for getting the pronoun wrong. So no, it's not. It's, you know, okay, thank you. And then move on because you just want to thank someone for sharing their truth or for correcting you in a moment. And then you move on and you go to the next and trying to explain to her that like using someone's correct pronouns is actual like suicide prevention. It's actually like truly respecting someone's personhood and being willing to, Hey, you might make a mistake. Sure. But if you're really trying, the likelihood is whoever you're looking to take care of is going to feel cared for. And isn't that what we want? Right. Right. Why wouldn't you want to take a step that would care for someone else? Even if it means you had to take a beat to make the right move. Right. I mean, I love that concept of like it not being an all or nothing thing. There are very small steps. If you think like you will say, you know, bless you or gesundheit or whatever, if somebody sneezes 
and not think anything of it, which is a weird thing to do when you think about it. It's not that weird to change your pronouns when somebody corrects you on them. Like it's it like it's not you do little common courtesy things to people all the time saying excuse me or you're welcome like mm-hmm. adjusting pronouns is very like not different than that at all. Uh but I do think it's true that people view um kind of this I, I, I'll, I'll put it in like their terms, like new wave of like wokeism or whatever, but really it's just being a good person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, people view that as like being like, my mom has said several times, like, oh, it's, it's just so like overwhelming or like confusing. There's so much to like learn and to know. And I understand where she like is coming with that, but th- more than anything, it's just like, well, then just start asking questions, just start like learning and educating yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if you don't have people in your life, uh, right now or that are, you know, you know, that you know of that, you know, you have to change how you use pronouns or change what like kind of language you use. That doesn't mean one, that that's always going to be the case. Um, and, and two, even if that is the case right now, you can still educate yourself to be more informed on issues like Roe v. Wade, what that means for people who aren't yourself, uh, you know, looking, looking past, your little bubble. Mm-hmm. My mom uses that phrase all the time. I just love my little quiet bubble. I was like, well, that's privileged, mom. So, well, and that's really like, that's exactly what has, I think, been happening on social media as a result of Roe v. Wade. Is there are a lot of white women who are very upset and they are expressing their discomfort and how they don't feel like this is not the America that I'm, I want to be in and I don't have any rights and okay. But you do understand that this is an experience that's been perpetuated upon people of color. We've been sterilized forcibly. We've been bred to create the workforce that built the South and that built this country. Um, so it's offensive to like, you know, chalk it up to just this one thing, but also it makes me, while I am a queer parent and I am a queer woman in a marriage, I'm aware of what could be coming down the pipeline and based on the way the justices signaled, specifically Thomas, what is likely coming and the cases they're looking to take and the challenges they're looking to pose. I'm hesitant to kick the can down the road that far because I do want to own what an experience this being taken away is. And like, I want to honor that. And so I hold some space for that, but I do also, I'm straddling the line of wanting to say, yes, I totally agree. You know, like the, you know, I was fortunate to have had a um, successful pregnancy with Campbell and that was a blessing truly I have friends who have had ectopic pregnancies, et cetera, and who have had to have abortion health care. And I, I feel like there's space for that, but there also has to be space for those of us who are saying, okay, but if this is happening, there has to be more coming. They yeah. had to only been emboldened by what happened here. Yeah. So. And, it's, and it's possible to do both. It's possible right. to grieve for what we lost right now and to also be worried for what's coming. Yep. It's not an either or. Yep. Um, and and just like every other, you know, social cause that people have had to fight for, it usually doesn't do us very good to kind of point out those fault lines within mm-hmm. our own, you know, coalition, so to speak. Um, 
if anything, it, it does us worse to, to, to infight about who deserves to grieve most. Obviously, having discussions like that are important. Um, but also, I don't know where I was going with that because I don't want to sound too, like, <laughs> preachy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, like I said, I think it's possible to do both. And mm-hmm. while at the end of the day, it is important to have those conversations and to kind of suss out who's most... Uh, impacted by things um at the end of the day we are always stronger together and i think that's a great principle to keep in in mind um i won't keep you too long this is truly a topic i feel like we could talk about forever (laughs) because like we kind of talked about at the head of the intersectionality all of these issues tie into one another and it you know this concept of roe v way being overturned does impact a lot of people's lives in a lot of different ways so like i said there's always more to talk about but final closing words um what would you want to impart on our listeners if they either a um you know don't have experience with queer families or don't you know this roe v wade won't affect them what do you want to impart to them or um any encouragement advice for people who are impacted by Roe v. Wade, who um, are worried or are in a similar boat to you? What has helped you, um, you know, kind of bolster your spirits through this time? Yeah. Um, I have probably spent more time looking at Campbell lately and just like really looking at him. Um, because that grounds me in in reality, right? Like all of the all of the talking heads on the news and you know, all the reporters and their opinions and all of that and like yes, that's all very true, but ultimately like I've spent so much time just looking at my son and recognizing that you know, I knew going in that we are in a world that was not made for families like ours. And I promised him that I would do everything I could to take care of us then. And that has not changed at all. Um, I feel like, you can come in. Yeah. I feel like, um, we, we know more of who we are now. My wife and I have been together for a decade at this point. Um, So if anything, I would say, I would tell people to anyone that's looking down the track and wondering if it's a light at the end of the tunnel or an oncoming train, look at the people around you and rely on them for support. be honest about how you feel. Don't try to squash anything because you don't think you should have that feeling yet because we don't know anything. You know, yes, worrying is often referred to as praying for things you don't want, but you can prepare for the things you don't want if you think about them. So talk to an attorney, you know, talk to a couple Get someone that you have some good vibes with. If they're worth their salt, they might even have a payment plan if money is a problem for you. Um, But, you know, if you're in this situation, I would absolutely advise you to exercise any legal opportunities you can because 
that's truly the way to protect yourself. And if you're someone that doesn't have a lot of experience with queer families, um, change your language, start calling the grownups of children their grownups instead of their parents, um, start normalizing asking questions to get a better understanding, um, and just expand your own thinking. So often when people say something is overwhelming, it's because they haven't grasped like the expansiveness. So rather than being overwhelmed and like put upon or stressed out by having to like change your language or change your understanding of what a family or a person looks like, look at it as this person just gave you a gift. You just got to expand your brain space and you just got so many new awesome brain wrinkles that are gonna, you know, make so many new connections and it's really great. It just, it feels like so often people get really bummed out trying to change the way they think because they're yeah. so used to thinking in a limited way. Yeah. And it's not, it's a gift. We get to expand things. I'm a language nerd. We get to change language. How yeah. cool is that? It's, yeah. it's just, it's great. I love that. Those are, I think, uh, great parting sentiments to, to hand out. And I, again, just want to thank you so much for being so open, being um, so so articulate and, and phrasing things in such a way that you know, are, are easy to latch onto and, and also um, impart so much wisdom in the process. So thank you for your time, Danielle. Uh, hopefully this isn't an ongoing um, issue that we have to keep revisiting and hopefully, you know, I, 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 there's not there's not a clear hopeful, you know, I, I say that I don't want to come back to this in that I, I hope there's no, no issues, no fewer bonehead rulings by the Supreme Court that we have to keep revisiting as it pertains to, to queer families. So hope, like when I say, when I say, I hope I don't have to have you back, that's what I mean. Um, but that being said, it was a pleasure and I would welcome you back anytime to, to continue diving into these issues. So um, thank you so much. Thank you.